Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do not hear how many things they have testified against you. But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him up to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for reading. Can something be both terrible and wonderful all at the same time? Give you a quick minute to think about anything you find in life that you find uh, at the same time both terrible and wonderful. Uh, I find distance running both terrible and wonderful all at the same time. I see some running enthusiasts here, so you may resonate with me. Uh, It's terrible. It's long, grueling, often painful. At the same time, uh, it's fun. It's very simple. You just put your shoes on, go out and run. And it's very satisfying once you finish. I've also increasingly found my parents wrinkle and all the damage uh, that aging brings to their body are both terrible and wonderful at the same time. Uh, it's so terrible uh, seeing dad's once broad and sturdy shoulder and stature uh, shrink to a shell of what it used to be. Uh, uh, the number of medication that he takes has increased each year and he's looking more and more like uh, that old grandfather that I used to remember. It's so terrible. At the same time, I find it very beautiful as I'm reminded of all the sacrifice he has made uh, for our family. Can something be terrible and wonderful at the same time? For thousands of years, Christians have responded with a resounding yes at the foot of the cross. At the cross, uh, we see the horror of human sinfulness. Yet, standing side by side, the horror of human sinfulness is the beauty of divine holiness. That's what Matthew shows us in this final part of his gospel, uh, in chapter 26 and chapter 27. Jesus is betrayed, denied and deserted, unfairly tried, beaten, crucified, 
And through it all, we see the terrible depravity of humanity, the injustice and cruelty. Yet in the midst of all this unraveling of human depravity, we see the unveiling of the Father's heart towards us. As Jesus prayed in the garden, your will be done. In his arrest, Jesus said the scripture, the word of God, must be fulfilled. Uh, the word of God is another word for heart of God. Because in his word, you see his heart. And what is that God's heart? What is his will? Matthew told us from the very beginning, the first chapter of his gospel, Emmanuel, God with us. At the heart of God's heart is that God wills to be with us, even though we don't want to be with him. God wills to be with depraved, rebellious, evil humanity. And for Emmanuel, Jesus will be betrayed, delivered into the hands of sinners, beaten, mocked, spit upon, and be crucified. Cross of Christ is horrific. Human depravity can really sink and stink. But the cross of Christ is also terrific, isn't it? Divine love will travel much further than a prodigal son can ever run away from, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now we see the terror and wonder of the cross in Matthew 27 yet again. Many things in today's narrative make you want to scream, unfair, cruel, evil. Yet at the same time, if you see it right, you may also find yourself singing, when I survey the wondrous cross, that amazing grace, how can it be? Now look at the passage in three parts today. Uh, first, terrible and wonderful silence in verses 11 to 14. Then the terrible and wonderful exchange in verses 15 to 23. Finally, the terrible and wonderful deliverance in verses 24 to 26. Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor. The word stood there is passive. Uh, Jesus was led, uh, put there before the governor by the people who were striking and mocking him at Caiaphas' house earlier. Throughout the narrative, Jesus is handed over from people to people, betrayed by Judas to the chief priest, high priest to Pilate, and Pilate to the soldiers. It's almost as though Jesus doesn't have any personal agency in this passion narrative. Uh, what we moderns love, personal choice and freedom, or Jesus doesn't have any of that, does he? Jesus, by whom and through whom and in whom all things were made and have their being, is passed from one hand to another, like a sheep to be slaughtered. Uh, we're given the governor's name in verse 13, Pilate. Uh, Pontius Pilate is probably the most famous Roman who has ever lived. It's ironic, isn't it? Uh, as his name is recounted by billions of Christians around the world in the words of the Apostles' Creed. Both the Roman historian Tacitus and Jewish historian Josephus left the record of Pontius Pilate as Italian equestrian who rose to prominence through his military service. Uh, so he was a tough man and a man of war. He became the prefect of uh, uh, Judea around AD 26 and remained there and ruled there for about 10 years. Judea was known for being turbulent with frequent riots, 
So Caesar sent one of his tough men to mine this government, uh, this area. Now, what's emphasized in today's narrative of our pilot is that he was the governor. See how many times the word governor is repeated in quick succession. Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him. Verse 14, the governor was greatly amazed. Verse 15, the governor was accustomed. Verse 21 and verse 27 again in next week's passage. By repeatedly calling him the governor, Matthew is equating Pilate as the symbol of Roman authority. Jesus has been speaking about kingdoms and speaking of himself as a king. Here comes a moment. Caesar versus Christ. Kingdom of heaven versus kingdom of earth. But this historic showdown of powers is an odd one. Uh, Jesus makes it odd by the way he answers Pilate's questions. Uh, Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? We can almost hear the contempt and even relief of Pilate at seeing Jesus. Well, he looks so helpless and weak, unimpressive and ordinary, betrayed by his own people, his own disciple at that. You, the king of the Jews, pathetic. Well, Jews deserve it, but they are pathetic. Jesus ambiguously acknowledged that he is a king, you have said so, but he's not the kind of a king Pilate expects. Uh, Caesar is a sword king who rules over others, but Jesus is a servant king uh, who will uh, turn the other cheek when he is slapped. Pilate looks at Jesus and always sees the weak, foolish, and terrible king of the Jews. But he is surprised by at least one thing, verse 12, when Jesus was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, now Pilate's amazed because it's only instinctive to fight for one's life when you are threatened. Isn't that what you do? That's what humans do? Because we all live under the shadow of death. We all fear death greatly. Uh, that's what Peter did uh, back in the garden uh, when the arrest came. He tries to wield his sword. He fought. And when the fighting didn't work, next time when he was threatened, he fled and denied. That's what we do. Either fight or flee response. Uh, and that's our, our instinctive reaction under the fear and threat of death. Pilate has met many men in this situation before, but none like Jesus. He must have wondered, he, he's known for his wisdom to, to be a great teacher, but why doesn't he say anything? Uh, is he naive? Does he not know what crucifixion is? What man doesn't fight to be freed from crucifixion? Uh, how can he remain so calm and silent when he is unjustly accused? Remember the time when you were unjustly accused? Could you remain silent and calm? They're slapping him and he's turning the other cheek. And Pilate is greatly amazed. Jesus remains silent here because he remains silent to fulfill the scriptures as Isaiah's suffering servant in Isaiah 53 verse 7. He remains silent because he is going to the cross willingly. Jesus isn't going to the cross, kicking and screaming, but he goes willingly. He has tuned his heart to the heart of God. 
that he will die for those who are falsely accusing him and will kill him. Jesus is silent because he trusts in the goodness of his Father. Even though I go through the valley of death, I shall not be evil, for I know you're with me. He is also silent because he is accepting you and my guilt on our behalf. In one sense, he is silent because he is acknowledging you and my guilt for us here. A bit like earlier in Matthew's Gospel when Jesus was baptized by John. John protested saying, I'm baptizing people for repentance for the forgiveness of sins and you come baptized by me? I should be baptized by you. But Jesus said, no, do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. This is also terrible. The Son of the living God stands before a knee Roman prefect to give an account. The judge of the living and the dead, judged by a mortal man, uh, the word who was with God in the beginning, now suffer injustice, accusation, and condemnation from the lips of those whom he has made with his word. But it's also wonderful. You see, the Son of God stood trial before a mortal man suffer accusation, condemnation, so that you and I stand before the judgment throne of God without fear or despair. Jesus remained silent then, so that he now speaks and intercedes for you and I forever. His silence meant our salvation. You see, what a wonder, what a beauty. And so we now break our silence and give him our adoration, joining the angels in heaven singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Now, continue on Matthew's narrative, terrible and wonderful exchange in verse 15. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. Now, that's interesting. What custom? What custom are they talking about? Uh, remember what the time was? It's easy to uh, ignore the context. What was the time? Well, it was the Passover. They were celebrating the Passover, right, in the earlier chapter. That wonderful deliverance of God for the people of Israel from Egypt. When God killed every firstborn son of Egypt, so that God's firstborn son, Israel, would be set free. That terrible, yet at the same time, wonderful exchange of Exodus. Well, commemorating the Exodus, a custom of releasing a prisoner during the Passover seems to have taken place. At this point, we're introduced to another prisoner in verse 16. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Uh, the word notorious, I think, is probably better translated well-known or even popular. Uh, Luke's Gospel tells us that Barabbas was a revolutionary who wasn't afraid to use his force to free Israel from Roman oppression. So uh, I think he was fairly well-known, and he would have been considered dangerous and unfavorable from the perspective of the Romans and Jews who preferred and were in favor of Roman rule. But uh, he would have been quite popular and supported by the Jews uh, who wanted to free themselves from the oppression of the Romans. 
more interesting thing about Barabbas is his name. Bar in Aramaic means son. You'll see that on the slide. Uh, remember how Jesus called Peter uh, Simon Bar Jonah in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17. Uh, which meant uh, si- uh, Peter, Simon, son of Jonah. Uh, should it come out on the slide, Debbie? Yep. And Abba means, as you're very well aware, means father, isn't it? So Barabbas name meant a son of a father. That's interesting, isn't it? What's all the more fascinating is that some of the early Greek New Testament manuscripts records that Barabbas' full name was Jesus Barabbas. Uh, if that's true, uh, what's going on here uh, is that you've got two Jesus and two son of God. Jesus Barabbas, Jesus Son of a Father, and Jesus, the one who claims to be the Son of God. So, if Sir Pilate is asking in verse 17, whom do you want me to release for you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? He's asking the crowd to choose which Son of God they want. The one whose name means Son of Father or the one who claims to be the Son of God. The one who isn't afraid to wield a sword, bringing kingdom on earth, or the one who turns the other cheek, speaking about kingdom of heaven. The one who kills for his freedom, or the one who will die to set others free. Now before we see the response of the crowd, the narrator gives two side details in verses 18 to 19. Look at verse 18. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Uh, throughout the gospel, the multitude has been following Jesus, marveling at his miracles and teaching. Uh, that has provoked the Jews, especially the uh, religious powers of the day, uh, to envy. Uh, they wanted crowd to follow them, listen to them, remain under their power and control and authority. And Pilate could see that much. Now, this is still the case for many today. People don't want Jesus to intrude upon their life. Uh, my choice and my freedom to live the way, my life the way I want to live. And we are rightly horrified in these chapters at the way the chief priests treat Jesus, but every time we ignore Jesus' rightful claims upon our lives, we actually join in the spirit of the chief priests as we push and drive Jesus away from us. Besides, come back to Pilate in verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. That dream features at both the beginning and end of Matthew's gospel, doesn't it? Remember the very first dream? The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and said, back in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, it'll come out on the slide behind me, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, at the end of the gospel, Pilate's wife has a dream and sees Jesus rightly. Uh, in a narrative where false accusation persists, she alone gives a true testimony. She sees that Jesus is not only innocent, but righteous. One who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, 
nor stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, it's very ironic here. We are meant to see the irony that the chief priests of God's people, um, the teachers of the law, so-called theologians and senior ministers or assistant ministers, however you want to call it, are trying to kill Jesus on the outside, but here a Gentile woman. Uh, not much access to the Word of God in the Old Testament Scriptures probably, but just with a faint witness from a dream, seeks to save Jesus. Much like the beginning of the Gospel, how Gentile Magi would not let any distance get in the way, travel from far away, bringing their gift to worship at the feet of the King of the Jews, while Herod and Jerusalem Council sought to kill Jesus, and in the process uh, killed everyone who's under two years old in Bethlehem. As is often the case in Matthew's Gospel, the outsiders prove themselves more perceptive and humble than the insiders. That's going to be a little bit of a warning that Matthew's Gospel gives us, I think. Uh, we see this with those who have grown up in Christian family, perhaps. Going to Sunday school, week by week, they take Christian Gospel for granted. Uh, keep Jesus at an arm's length. Uh, in the church, physically, but spiritually, never in Christ. Uh, then you have a newcomer who's never heard of the Gospel, but sees Jesus and His glory and His beauty at the foot of the cross and not take that for granted. And they say, uh, they follow Jesus, denying themselves, take up the cross. Now perhaps uh, a warning here to be taken for uh, those of us who are uh, insiders, to never take the gospel for granted, to never grow bored of seeing Jesus on that cross, silent for our salvation. Well, the people of Israel are persistent and willful in their rejection. Matthew shows us in verse 20. Uh, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, uh, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Jesus Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Just feel the occasion and what is happening here once more. At the Passover, which commemorates God's deliverance of his people, which is meant to remember God's steadfast, faithful love to his people, freeing them from slavery. Israel rejects the Son of God and delivered him back to Egypt. Israel rejects God and delivered God's firstborn Son, the Son of the living God, into the hands of a Gentile ruler. Jesus has come to seek and save them, but they have come to seek and destroy him. Jesus healed, fed, and loved them, but they hate him and cry, crucify him. Asking for the freedom of a murderer at the cost of the death of the Son of God. See, it's an absolute horror. But it's only when you see how horrific it is, I think you really grasp 
the depths of its wonder. Barabbas, look at him again, was a rebel and a murderer. He has no right to be remembered or freed. He shouldn't be, he shouldn't even be given this choice of release from the first place. Let alone receive a divine grace at the feast of Passover. But I think that's the whole point. And Matthew is shouting at us, neither do you, neither do I. Yet Christ has died for you and for me anyway. And because of the death of Christ, the Son of the living God, now you and I actually become a Barabbas. We become son and daughter of God. Because Jesus, the Son of God, was forsaken by the Father, we are now forgiven by the Father and we can cry, Abba, Father, and boldly approach the throne of His grace in our time of need. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? It's absolutely horrific what's happening here, but it's so glorious. What a wonderful exchange. And then finally look at the terrible and wonderful deliverance in verses 24 to 26. Verse 24, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Pilate washed his hands. Again, the irony. It's, it's reminiscent of the Old Testament sacrificial system. This is what the priest did before offering sacrifice. Gentile ruler washing his hands before Jewish people killing their Messiah. It's really horrific. And also, if you have been following Matthew's Gospel all along, well, Old Testament sacrificial system is ineffective. It's corrupt. Later, Hebrews writer says, blood of goats and bulls cannot never take away your sins and cleanse the guilty conscience. That is why Jesus came. That is why he says, I have come to fulfill the law. I am innocent, he says. But no amount of protesting of innocence or washing with water can cleanse the guilty conscience but only the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what's happening. Pilate says, uh, see to it yourself. Uh, you remember, that's what the chief priest said to Judas in the previous episode in verse 5. It's your fault. It's your responsibility. And if you look at this whole narrative, everyone's passing the buck. See to it yourself. See to it yourself. It's not my fault. You did it. You did it. Uh, it it's a good summary of human history. Uh, in a succinct manner. This is what humanity has been doing ever since the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve blamed each other for rejecting God. We reject God and we blame upon society, cultural trend, my situation. Ironically and most wonderfully, the only person who is not passing the buck in this entire narrative, and I want to say in entire human history, is the righteous and innocent suffering servant, Jesus Christ. The sinless Son of God goes to the cross in silence and in willing submission to the Father. The chief priest says, see to it yourself. God the Father said, look at my son. Pilate says, see to it yourself. Jesus says, 
come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Inviting us to have his rest, then he takes the sins of the world upon himself and goes to the cross. While Pilate washes his hands, the crowd willingly dirties their hands, verse 25, all the people answered, His blood be upon us and on our children. Then Pilate released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Did you notice that crowds have now become people in verse 25? I just look through the narrative. They, they were referred as crowds, crowds, all the way through, but they are no longer plural crowds, but now they are singular, united nation, setting themselves up against Jesus. Leaders, people, Gentile ruler, all gathered against Christ. The people of Israel are gathered, we are told earlier in verse 17, uh, in a bit like reminiscent when the Old Testament Israel gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai after the deliverance of the Passover in Egypt. Israel gathers yet again as a united people, but instead of bowing their heads before their God, they call for his crucifixion before the Gentile ruler in this account. <laughs> Matthew is basically showing us Israel is doing everything that they can to shout back at God, I don't want to be your people. I don't want you as my God. We have no God but Caesar. Christ, let him be crucified. This is awful, terrible, no other word to say then, evil. Yet God turns this tragedy into comedy. The cruelest human invention of crucifixion becomes the site of the greatest divine intervention as Jesus indeed pours out his blood for the forgiveness of sins for those who are calling out for his blood. That's the irony. That's exactly what God wills to do and what God will do. We call out for his blood we shout, I don't want you, let him be crucified. And Jesus, the Father's heart is that, yes, my blood will be poured out for you. Yes, my blood will cleanse you. Only the righteous blood can cleanse the sins of the guilty, and that is what Jesus did for you, did for me, and did for the many. And because Jesus is delivered to the cross and delivered us from sin and death, we now pray the Lord's Prayer. We are delivered from evil. We are delivered from fear of death and into the arms of the Father. You see the wonder of the cross and beauty of Christ. Now, as we finish, let's personally reflect on one question from today's passage. There's a lot of questions in today's passage, actually. Pilate doesn't make much statement, but just asks lots of questions. But one question in particular, I think, uh, Matthew wants all his readers to consider, and that is Pilate's question in verse 22. 
then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? See, the question must be answered by all of us here this morning. What should you do with Jesus the Christ? And remember who he is. He is the one who remains silent before the judgment of crucifixion so that you will not be afraid before the judgment throne of God. He is the one who was forsaken so that you can be forgiven. He's the one who shed his innocent blood so that your guilty conscience can be cleansed. You see, there's so much wrong in today's passage. I hope you see that. I hope you feel the injustice of this uh, today's passage, the wrong Jesus released, the innocent condemned, the judge judged. But God uses all these wrongs to make everything right. He who did nothing wrong was condemned for everything so that we who have done everything wrong can be made right with God. So what will you do with Jesus Christ? And I think we ought to cry, worthy is the man. Now how about we respond by praying and then in praise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the beautiful and terrible cross of Christ. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see the horror of human sinfulness and the beauty of his holiness on that cursed cross. What we have done, forgive us by the blood of Christ. What we cannot do, give us by your grace. What we are not, make us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Renew and transform us to be a people who give glory, honor, and praise to our Savior, who was slain for our sins, and who now lives forever to intercede for us in heaven. In his most precious name we pray. Amen.